This podcast is a Radio Mike original production. Head to radiomike.com.au to find out more. Welcome to a very special bonus edition of Harry Potter and the Boys, my fan fiction Harry Potter podcast. Today we are not talking about my fan fiction Harry Potter novel. We are in fact talking about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, specifically the on-stage version of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the eighth story in the Harry Potter film, uh, in the Harry Potter franchise that takes place uh, years after the Deathly Hallows, similar to my fan fiction, actually, but this one goes in a very different direction to my fan fiction that I wrote when I was in year seven. Today, I wanted to do essentially a comprehensive review on my thoughts on everything The Cursed Child, um, from how it works as an on-stage play and from a performance angle in terms of the actors and everything involved with this as a production. But, and I think what more people would maybe be interested in from from hearing from me, uh, the actual uh, story of The Cursed Child and what I think about it and how I think it works. So all of that and more coming in this episode of Harry Potter and the Boys. So please keep tuned. I have tried to organize my thoughts and uh, organize it into kind of sections. This may be a two-part thing, depending how long I go. I really do not know how long I'm going to take talking about all my thoughts. So I do have my laptop in front of me, which I am going to be referring to, but I have a lot of thoughts and I want to start by saying this will be a spoiler review. Like I will be spoiling all the key narrative points of this book. Like I will not be holding back. I will not be uh, like shielding stuff from being spoiled. So if you do not want to be spoiled, like maybe read the book or see the play before you listen to this. And I believe this may be the only uh, podcast review of the Harry Potter and the uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child uh, play, especially in Australia. So specifically in Australia, I don't know of anyone else who has done it. And I don't know anyone else as nerdy as me who has done it or as into the Harry Potter canon as me has done it. Uh, I am wearing, I am filming this as well. I'm currently wearing my Hogwarts hoodie that I bought for $80 there. And uh, I guess I'll just start by talking a little bit about the history of this and what I know about it. And essentially the final Harry Potter book, Deathly Hallows, came out in 2007, and I believed Cursed Child, and I could be wrong here, but I would say around about 2015, uh, the play launched, and uh, the book, the 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 play, the play as a book was also released then. So. In 2015, I went to buy the book because I knew that I was not going to be able to see this play because it was in, uh, it was overseas and it wasn't at that point coming to Melbourne or Australia in general. So as a Harry Potter fan, I really wanted to read it and see what happened next in the Harry Potter story, in the Harry Potter canon. And uh, well, I think like a lot of people, I was I was pretty disappointed with this story. I was pretty taken aback with uh, the brazenness of some of the narrative decisions in this story. And I really, really debated in my head as to whether or not I considered this story part of the Harry Potter canon. Uh, I know that J.K. Rowling, who wrote this alongside John Tiffany and Jack Thorne, uh, 
I know she considers considers it canon and uh, has urged fans of the Harry Potter franchise to consider this canonical to the Harry Potter universe, but a lot of fans, uh, hardcore fans of Harry Potter, have uh, made a conscious decision to not consider this story canon for a number of reasons, which I will get into later. And uh, I believe the Melbourne version of this play would have launched probably in 2019, so a few years ago. And then obviously because of COVID, it went on hold for essentially the entirety of uh, 2020. And uh, the the nights that I went to, which was the Thursday and Friday nights just passed because there is obviously a part one and a part two, each of which is two acts. All ev- so in total, there are four acts. Every act is around about an hour long and uh, there's a brief interlude in between. Uh those were the first nights back for not only the Australian edition of the play, but worldwide. We were the first night back post-COVID in this post-COVID era, which was really cool. It was great uh, to be in this environment and to to finally be able to see this play, which is, you know, very expensive, but for good reason, which I will get into later, but a really great, uh, a really great night. So let's, let's get into the review and I will start, as I said, I have broken this into various categories of, of, of how I can talk about this and break it down. And I do want to start off by talking about the stagecraft and the performances. So this is actually, you know, the play itself. I'm not really taking the narrative of the world into account here because I feel like there are two different things here that we're talking about. We're talking about how this works as an on-stage experience for someone going to the theater and then how it works as a narrative continuation of the Harry Potter franchise um, as a, as a canonical or non-canonical entry into the world of Harry Potter. So first things first, uh, I want to start by saying, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard this and, and I feel like it has become almost a joke in, in, talking about this play that people say the story shit, but you have to see it on stage. You have to see this play. Lots of people saying that story shit. It's an amazing play. And that is exactly how I would describe this. Like this as a theater experience is an experience. I will never forget. Like this was just an incredible achievement in what performance on stage can be. And I, you know, I really like musical theatre. I've been to a lot of musicals. You know, I've seen Wicked. I thought that was incredible. I've seen The Lion King, Book of Mormon. Like, I really like, I remember the first time I ever went to a musical on stage. It was not long ago. It was like 2014. I would have been 20 years old when I saw it. You know, I never really went to the theatre growing up. Parents weren't really into it. Never really went to it. The first show I saw was Wicked and it blew my mind because I just had never experienced all of this incredible stuff in a stage setting before. I'd never had that experience in my life. And I just thought I was astounded by how amazing Wicked was in terms of, you know, if you've seen it, flying across the, flying across the stage and bringing a narrative to life on stage and the incredible acting and and everything like that. So I'm a huge fan of this kind of thing. Of course, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is not a musical. It is just a play. So keep that in mind. But in terms of, yeah, what they have achieved here. And, you know, I know that the Harry Potter Wizarding World franchise is, is a billion dollar franchise. Like, and if you have that much money, of course, the product you produce is going to be incredible. But I just was amazed at, at what I saw and how like, and this is going to sound lame, but it really did feel like magic a lot of the time. This on stage was absolute magic. And I guess 
later in this podcast when I'm going to be probably very critical of the story of that is presented in this play, I do want to say that by chance, if anyone who is an actor or an actress in this play or is involved in the production of this play, none of the criticism of the narrative of this story is directed to any of those people because every single person involved in this play does an incredible job. Everyone absolutely gave it a hundred percent, gave it their all. And the acting was incredible. I loved how, uh, and if you've, if you've seen the play, you will know that, uh, the, the scene transitions, when they're transitioning from scene to scene, there is often like really fast motions from characters who are wearing cloaks to s- sort of show the passing of time alongside this amazing uh, onstage score that I realised after seeing it was actually composed by Imogen Heap, the person, the singer of like songs like Hide and Seek, which is a great um a really great song. That score was something amazing. And I, when I was watching part part one um, on the Thursday night, at one point, uh, I believe it happens when the characters first travel back in time, you actually hear samples of the lyrics from Hide and Seek um, when they emerge into the, into the past. And I was like, what the hell? Why did we just hear the lyrics from Hide and Seek by Imogen Heap? And obviously I then go and look it up and find out that Imogen Heap is the person who wrote the music for this. The music is unbelievable and it is so far removed from the score of the Harry Potter movies. And I obviously intentional. This is not like a orchestral, you know, string. I feel like a lot of the, uh, the movie, the movie score is very orchestral and string based. The onstage is very modern sounding, like very electronic synthy and like, yeah, so different and and none of the none of the motifs or musical motifs from the movie scores appear in any way in this. Like there's none of like the Hedwig's theme or the Diagon like it is totally original, not even not even repurposing the motifs as far as I can tell. Um I really liked it and I, I saw that it's on Spotify, so I really want to check that out. So all of the music that plays when the scenes are transitioning is so amazing and the speed at which these actors are just like changing the scenes, but the scene changes are a part of the play. Like, you know, they're all in costume. It's not just someone walking in. And I'm sure like people who go to the theater all the time are probably used to this, but I, you know, I don't, I don't go to the theater very often. So to me, this was a really cool thing to, to watch. It was very unexpected. Like instead of just someone walking on and putting a chair on the stage and, you know, moving something out of the stage, it's all artistic in how that is happening alongside the music and the performances and just breaking it up, you know, like all of these points that could be considered slow points where the scene is changing um, doesn't really feel like that. There's also some great moments where they're showing, it's almost like a montage on stage where time they're showing like time is passing in terms of like Albus Severus, who is the main character in Harry's son. They're showing that he is progressing through his years at Hogwarts and the way that they're showing time passing using lighting and effects and him like just the way that they show it without any of these characters leaving the stage and characters sort of coming in and out to meet to see him and talk to him and then you know showing that years are passing here in his life and he's sort of going through Hogwarts and it doesn't feel like a slog but it's essentially an an, an onstage uh, montage uh I want to give a huge, huge shout out to one of my favorite moments in this entire play over the two nights, which is the end of uh, act two of part one in which uh, 
uh, essentially, and I'm not not going to try and, but basically, Dementors appear in the story, and the appearance of the Dementors. This is the last moment of Night One where it, things really take a turn for the worse for uh, the narrative, and the Dementors appear on screen. One of the Dementors flies into the crowd, and it is a really harrowing and horrific, like very scary moment. Like you really do feel the true terror of the Dementors based on the the way the lights are, the ghostliness of the Dementors who I think must be puppets. Like I don't think there are actors under the Dementors, but I think they're puppets, one, you know, flying around the audience and just this darkness and, 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 it is really scary. Like I would say that if I was a kid seeing this play, there were numerous points where I would have been very, very scared. And bringing to life, bringing to life the Dementors, who are such a such a huge, uh, scary part of the Harry Potter universe, was really good. You see them doing the Dementors kiss a number of times, and just the way they kind of crowd around the characters and and the, and the yeah, just wow blown away by that moment. There is also a moment uh, at the end of Act 3, as in Part 2, Act 1, in which uh, they you find out a key plot point of the story and the entire theatre lights up suddenly and in basically invisible ink is used. So, you know, there, there are points where as an audience member, you're actually looking around because the entire theater has invisible ink all over it and something's written on the walls and it totally takes you by surprise. And all of the actors are looking out into the audience, into the audience essentially, because they're seeing the same thing as you, which is that the entire theater is, is, has stuff written all over the walls. Uh, an absolutely amazing, uh, uh, thing. As I mentioned, uh, the acting in this is incredible. Uh, a lot of the characters who are portraying legacy characters uh, do a really good job of capturing how those characters were on screen. Like, I think their performances are really motivated by how actors that portrayed them in the, in the film franchise did. Uh, particularly Professor McGonagall, who is now the headmaster of Hogwarts. Professor McGonagall, uh, whoever was portraying Professor McGonagall, and I apologise that I don't know the name of the person playing it, uh, she just... It, it was like Maggie Smith was on stage. Like, the accent, the inflections, the the characterization and how her mannerisms, it was like watching the film Professor McGonagall. Absolutely nailed it incredibly immersive because like, you know, I guess you want to feel like these are the same characters you've seen on screen or read in the books. Hagrid is in it a bit. Really great. They really nailed Hagrid being a really big, huge presence. You know, he's, I, I don't know how they made him look so big and tall, but yeah, Hagrid really great. Nailed the accent and Dumbledore as well, who appears as a portrait talking to Harry a lot. Um, they really nailed the costuming, the look, everything about Dumbledore was incredible. Uh, Professor Snape appears, uh, and now we are moving into the territory of stuff that sucks about the narrative, but I'll get into the into the narrative again. Another character who, you know, was clearly very inspired by Alan Rickman's, another actor, sorry, that was clearly very inspired by Alan Rickman's portrayal of Snape, nails it. It is good to see Snape again, even though you know, for narrative purposes, I don't think Snape should have been in it, but it is good to see him. And uh, probably the highlight for me was Moaning Myrtle, uh, who was a severely underused character in the films. Um, she does appear in Chamber of Secrets and the Goblet of Fire film, but she also was in the, particularly the Half-Blood Prince book. She was a very prominent character and she had a relationship 
with Draco in that. You don't see that in the movie. It's really great in the book. But uh, loved seeing, uh, I loved seeing Moaning Myrtle. The actor portraying Moaning Myrtle did an incredible job capturing like essentially all of the mannerisms of Myrtle in the films. And uh, the way she's, you know, all in grey clothing to make it look like she's a ghost and um, the way she sort of moves on stage and moves on the on the scenery or like the, uh, yeah, I think the scenery of the, of the stage, really ghostly and just, yeah, really capturing that character so well. Really funny scene as well with Moaning Myrtle, especially because both Harry and Draco as adults are back in this bathroom. They both know Myrtle. They've both had experiences with Myrtle and she really leans into that. Uh, I I absolutely love that. Ron, uh, I, I found Ron, the, the actor for Ron was great. I did have a little bit of an issue with how Ron is portrayed in the in the play he's definitely like the comic relief character which I, I guess he kind of was out of the main trio in the films but he comes across in this as quite dopey and I never really thought that Ron was necessarily dopey like he was definitely lazy and he wasn't like I, I think the thing with Ron is like as a character he doesn't like because he's from a magical family magic is just like the thing for him. Whereas like someone like Hermione who magic is new to, she just wants to know everything about magic, but Ron's just like, yeah, magic school, whatever. This is so normal for me. Ron in this feels really dopey. Um, amazing performance uh, by the actor portraying Ron. Like it was fine, but I just felt like the way he was written was a little bit weird. And I thought he was just portrayed as like a bit of an idiot. And I don't think Ron was an idiot. Like I think he was, he became, what he became was a very passionate and accomplished wizard. So that seemed a little bit off to me. Um, The time travel while narratively terrible, uh, the moments where time is ticking back on stage, really amazing. The use of like, you know, flashback sound effects and then this amazing effect where it feels like the entire stage pulses and there's this really low bass sound effect that plays and it's just like, and it, and you really feel like you've gone back in time. Like it's that, that is a really great effect as well. And there is also a scene where the characters are all underwater. I'm not sure if that was a pre-recorded thing over my, my brother who I went with thought that that was actually pre-recorded because they're kind of, it, they would have had to be suspended from the roof, like floating through um, the water. But I, I, I wasn't sure about that. I don't, I think that I, I wouldn't think it would have been pre-recorded, but my brother claimed that it was. So I'm not really sure about that, but that was a really cool and, and interesting way of using the stage. So I guess that's, that's, that's my thoughts on this. This is a masterpiece in stagecraft and what can be achieved on a stage with great actors, a lot of money, and and, and that, that's necessary to create something like this. But, you know, amazing actors bringing these characters in this world to life and uh, amazing direction and, and, and stagecraft and everything like that. Oh, there is one, <laughs> there's one scene where Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter have a duel in Harry's living room at home. And I did think that was possibly the cheesiest moment of the play. I didn't think that looked like, I just thought it looked really lame. If you've seen the play, I'd be interested to know your thoughts, but like they're they're casting spells at each other, which is cool. And then the actors have to do these like matrix style, like movements where they're like 
you know, ma- the, you know, in the Matrix where they like, I don't, you, you get it. If you've seen the Matrix, you get it. And they're doing that kind of thing. It was kind of cheesy, but then there is another duel much later in the in the in the play, which is much much better and and looks much more incredible. The next section I want to uh, do for this podcast review is a section that is essentially things slash themes in this play that I think are really good. Themes that are present in this play or in this, sorry, more in this narrative. We're now talking narrative because as I've said, very controversial narrative. Lots of fans really do not like what happened in this play in terms of the law of the universe, the rules of the universe, and just the narrative and the characterization of of a lot of of a bunch of the characters. Um, a lot of people don't like it, me included, but I, I do want to give credit to the writers of this story, including JK, um, of how of the themes in this that I think are important and do really work and would have been really good if we took the time travel aspect out of it. So I want to talk a lot about that. I also did forget to mention there uh, in the stagecraft, but uh, the actors who portray Albus Severus and Scorpius Malfoy, who, who you know, really are the main characters. They are, I guess, you know, it, it's, it's up in the air who the cursed child is. I guess it's Albus Severus, but, you know, Scorpius Malfoy is also cursed in one way as well. So, you know, they are really the cursed childs, the cursed children, and uh, they both do an incredible, incredible job, and they were just an absolute pleasure to watch on, on stage. So, themes about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child's narrative that work really well and I would like to see developed further. Um, first of all, the entire concept of Draco Malfoy's son and Harry Potter's son becoming best friends at Hogwarts. Great concept. A little bit fan fiction-y, but still a really interesting concept because I think it sort of forces the hand of Malfoy and Harry to acknowledge that their sons are best friends and like they kind of have to be friendly with each other, Um, which kind of leads me into another thing that I thought was really well, but I will get to that soon. The friendship between Albus and Scorpius, I I really, really like. I think there is a lot of just great banter between them and this whole thing of like, I'm a Malfoy, you're a Potter. People don't expect us to be friends. Like all that stuff I think is great. Um, And they bounce really well off each other. Scorpius couldn't be further from what you would expect a Malfoy to be, right? Scorpius as a character is very scared. He's very, um, he's very, you know, he, he's certainly not the cold blooded kind of Malfoy that Draco and Lucius were. He's just like, he's a bit happy go lucky, but he's also very scared. He's also uh, very um, like, you know, uh, up. He's, he's very uppity. He's very like, um, you know, uh, is that a good idea? Do you think that's a good idea? Should we do that? I don't, I don't know if that's a good, like he's that kind of, he's that kind of guy, very much a comic relief character to Albus Severus, who is sort of like this, the straight man of the duo, I suppose. Um, but I, I really like the, the concept of Albus and, and Scorpius being friends. I, I think that that opens a door of possibility that is really interesting. And I think they work really well together the way they're written. Um, a lot of people uh, believe that there is a uh, like a, a homosexual relationship building between the two, like that's not explicit, explicitly stated anywhere in the play, but a lot of people read and interpret this play as they are sort of falling in love with each other through their years being friends at Hogwarts. And I, I really like that. 
I think that um, when I read the play five or six years ago in 2015, when I read it, I didn't really get any any of that. Like I didn't get feel like there was any subtext to suggest that. So I kind of was like, oh, I don't, I don't really see it like that. But seeing the play on stage, it really leans into that idea of them kind of being friends, but you, there's like, a, there's more than friendship here. It's, it's almost like a love thing. It's like they love each other and they don't want to be apart. And there are a few lines that kind of can, can be read either way, depending on how you want to interpret it. But like, whether this is a decision by the actors to kind of lean into that, that shipping angle of Albus and, and Scorpius, I'm not sure, or whether it is intentional. Like, I think you, you, you can read it however you want to read it, but seeing the play comparatively to reading, reading the book of the play, I definitely felt that there was a, a much stronger connection than just friendship. But like that being said, you know, you can platonically love a friend. Absolutely. So, but, but the way I was reading it was like, particularly, particularly Scorpius to Albus, there was a a little bit more than just we're best friends. It was like, I think it's like, there's a bit of love here. There's a bit of a deeper connection here. Um, And, and I think even towards at the end of the play, Scorpius and Albus are laughing about how Scorpius asked out Rose Weasley, who is Hermione and Ron's daughter, another character in the play. Um, And they were kind of almost like, I felt like the performance was almost knowingly them being like, Hey, like, yeah, you asked her out, but you know, like that we both know, we both know the truth. Like, I don't know. I didn't really know necessarily how to read it, but I, 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 I like that theme as well. Like, I think, it's kind of fan fictiony, but the idea that Harry Potter's son and Draco Malfoy's son fall in love, I think that's, I think that's great. I think that's a really good plot point. Um, so on, on further from that is the relationship between Harry and Draco post Hogwarts is an incredible, incredible, uh, plot point of this book. And I thought that it was, I think that this is something I would love to see more of. So, Basically, and, and my reading of it always was at the end of Deathly Hallows in the epilogue, um, Harry, both in the film and the books, but let's go with the books, Harry, Ron and Hermione see Draco sort of from afar with his son and wife, Scorpius and Astoria, on platform nine and three quarters. And they kind of give each other like a knowing little nod. And, you know, there's no, my reading of it is, hey, like 19 years later, there's no longer, they're not, they're not best friends anymore. They're not like mates anymore. They're not, sorry, they're not best friends now, or they're not mates now, but there's like this knowing like, Hey, like the past is behind us and we can just be a civil people and we don't hate each other anymore. And also my other reading of Draco in Deathly Hallows generally is that, you know, at the end of that book slash film, Draco kind of realizes that all of this stuff about pure blood, uh, the pure blood kind of ethos and all of these thoughts and his family's, you know, I guess racist in the, in the magical world, it's essentially racist or bloodist, you know, however you want to want to put it. Um, it's certainly an allegory for, for racism. Um, I think Malfoy realizes, Hey, like this, this is fucked. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be part of this anymore. I don't want to be on Voldemort's side anymore. I don't want to do any of this as does his mom who, voluntarily defies Voldemort to pretend that Harry is dead, knowing that he's not to, to make sure that her son is safe. Um, you know, I think that Draco decides, Hey, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. 
fuck this, I'm not going to be a Death Eater. I don't want to do this. And he sort of has an, a change of allegiance there, right? And that's not to say he's totally not the Malfoy that... I, I think Malfoy changes as a person after that war and starts to become much more tolerant of muggles and et cetera. And, and that's lent into a bit. Like he, he marries a woman, Astoria, who is very muggle-friendly and is not by any means like a pure-blood fantasist like the way his family was. And he even mentions that his father... Lucius never liked the wife because she was too muggle friendly. So I think Malfoy just had a total change of heart. And I really like that. And I think the fact that in this story, Malfoy and Harry kind of have to work together to save their children is, is really good. This idea that they can be sort of civil, but there's still this this rivalry between them, but they're kind of friendly now. I enjoy that a lot. I think, you know, there's still a bit of Malfoy that's like, oh, you know, fucking Harry always trouble follows you. What, Like, I just want to be done with this. And you know, he doesn't necessarily want to be friends with Harry, but like in the in the way of like saving their children, they they have to kind of work together. And I really enjoyed them having to, um, having to, yeah, having to do that and having to talk through things. And there's a fantastic scene towards the end of the play because essentially one of the plot points is that Malfoy's wife and Scorpius's mum Astoria uh, was very sick and eventually died. Um, so she dies during the play and seeing just this much, seeing this very vulnerable adult Draco Malfoy who is very open about how he feels about his wife dying and how he he's you know, sad that his son is not, is going to grow up without a mother. Like all of these themes are really good and I, I really like them as well as the idea that, um, and then he's saying all this to Harry and Harry's like, oh, Draco, like I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like what, is there anything I can do? Do you need anything and stuff like that? And then this line from Draco of, um, it can be very, very lonely to be Draco Malfoy. And, he speaks a lot about how, you know, a lot of people shun him because of his father's association with Voldemort. A lot of people in the Wizarding World don't like Draco Malfoy or judge him. And he's like, I can't escape my past, but I've, I've changed. Like, I can't escape that. That's just what it is. But Scorpius shouldn't have to deal with being a Malfoy and and things like that. And this idea that Draco likes what life is now. Like, Draco likes that this new him that he's become and this world that he's created with his wife. Like, and, uh, you know, I just like that. I, I like Malfoy's development as a character in this play. I think there is a lot to glean there. Albus being sorted into Slytherin house, therefore meeting Scorpius is a great plot point because I think it breaks down this idea that Slytherin is like the evil house or the bad house. Cause I, I think that like, a lot of dark wizards happen to be in Slytherin because yeah, they have these pure blood tendencies and stuff. And that's this inherent racism in the wizarding world. But I actually think there's probably a lot of Slytherin students who are just like normal students at Hogwarts. And I don't think that being in Slytherin just inherently means you're evil. Like I don't. And that's not a characteristic of the Slytherin house to be evil. And we see other Slytherins who are noble and we see Gryffindors who are evil. Like Peter Pettigrew is a Gryffindor who betrayed his friends and essentially revealed their location to have them murdered by Voldemort. And, you know, Peter Pettigrew is like a spineless coward who was in Gryffindor. Horace Slughorn is like a pretty 
normal guy who fights against Voldemort and he was a Slytherin. Like, I don't, I think that people think that if you're in Slytherin, you're evil and everyone knows that, where I think it, it's more just like some people from Slytherin are evil. And yeah, a lot of pure blood students go into Slytherin and have those tendencies from their parents. So I liked the idea of Albus being sorted into Slytherin while his siblings are sorted into Gryffindor. That's really good. And another great theme that works very, very well in this play is this idea of Harry Potter having to deal with the trauma of his childhood and adolescence and teenage years um, that really he never really got the chance to deal with because he was always fighting a war, essentially. Like him having, him clearly being traumatized by not only what happened to him as a child with the Dursleys, but also the death and destruction around him and the expectation around him and him sort of being a celebrity in the wizarding world. And this idea that becomes a, a plot line in the story of coming to terms with all of the people that, died for him essentially in the world well you know I would say they died for a greater cause but a lot of people see it as oh they died to protect you or they died for you um having to come to terms with how some people don't perceive Harry as a hero some people such as uh Cedric Diggory's father who is a, a prominent character in this play see him as the person who is responsible for his son dying and like, Oh, you know, my son died because of you. My son died because he was a spare in the maze. Like you, you, he died because of you and you're the famous Harry Potter who got to live and gets glory and all of this. And my son had to die. His life was, was taken from me. And I'm, and, and, and uh, I'm an old man and I just want to see my son again. There are a few flashback moments where we see instances of Harry with the Dursleys that we never saw in the books there is one particularly great moment in which Aunt Petunia, <clears throat> in which Aunt Petunia takes Harry to um, the Godric's Hollow graveyard to visit his parents' grave, and Harry, as a child, says to her, you know, pre-knowing about magic, Harry says to her, um, "Hey, you, you said my parents didn't have any friends, and no one liked them, right?" And Petunia's like, "Yeah, no one liked your parents," and then it's like. How come there are so many flowers all over their graves? And Lil and Petunia actually starts crying and, you know, tells him, well, no, like someone's played a trick and put all the flowers on that grave as a joke. Like no one knew parents, but she's in tears. And I I always really like seeing Aunt Petunia's, like knowing that somewhere deep inside Aunt Petunia, there is this, you know, trauma of, hey, my, my sister was murdered and just, you know, no knowing that she is sad about that, but just doesn't want to express it because of her jealousy and, and everything. But she is really sad about it and she does really regret everything that happened. I think that's a really, really great theme. Um, there is a deleted scene in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one in which um, Harry is saying goodbye to Aunt Petunia and says, you need to leave because, and then Aunt Petunia says, yeah, I know what these people are capable of. Like you didn't just lose your mum that night I lost my sister. And there's like, you know, this, this thing of like Aunt Petunia being like, fuck, like I, I, she, she, she does miss her sister and she does miss like all of that. And she does care about Harry, but she just doesn't want to express it. And I thought that was a really good scene to include in this. The final thing that I think works really well thematically and narratively, and it's kind of a twofer because obviously Harry and Malfoy start to become a little bit chummy as Ron puts it. Ron is still like, hey, Malfoy, I, I I still don't really like you or trust you. And you've said some shit things to my wife, Hermione, about, 
you know, calling her a mudblood and, um, and then Hermione's like, hey, Ron, like, we're all on the same team here. Let's just be friends. And I liked seeing how Ron is still sort of, like, everyone felt very in character. Like, Ron wouldn't just, like, want to be friends with Malfoy. Um, and I liked him standing his ground in that way. Um, but here's here's a point that I think is great, which is due to uh, a bunch of the the time travel based plot, which again, I think is a general negative, but there is one point at the very end of the play spoilers in which essentially all of the main cast is back in Godric's hollow. The night Harry's parents are being murdered by Voldemort. And Harry realizes that in order to make things right, he needs to essentially uh, watch his parents be murdered by Voldemort and allow that to happen, allow them to be murdered and not intervene. And he has this great line and this is one of my favorite parts, despite all the time travel stuff. I still think this is a great theme and a great moment in which Harry says, um, he says something like, I'm about to watch my parents die and I can't do anything about it. And then I think, well, it's definitely Draco who says most of this, but Draco essentially says, and I, I loved this moment. This is a great moment. Draco says to him, no, you can do something about it as in he can go in there and stop Voldemort, right? He says, no, you can do something about it, but you're not going to, and that's heroic. And it's essentially Malfoy, like, acknowledging that Harry is a hero in this moment and Malfoy saying, yeah, what you're, like, it's essentially Malfoy comforting Harry Potter, saying, hey, like, you could go in there and save your parents, but you know that it's a bad idea because it's going to change time. Um, and because you're doing nothing, because you're willing to sit here and watch your parents be murdered, you are a hero. And uh, I really liked that moment of Malfoy comforting Harry. I thought that was a very great moment in this story. Finally, one more thing, sorry, is Dumbledore's usage as as a painting in the portrait and Harry almost being angry at Dumbledore at one point in the play, being like, you know, why, why did you have to do all this? Why couldn't you protect me? Like what, blah, 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 like all this stuff. Dumbledore being really emotional about it as a portrait. And then there is a great line from Dumbledore, um, which I do want to read. I went through and highlighted it last night. It is one of the last scenes in the thing. And this was just, you know, I, for everything people say about JK Rowling, I think that, um, I think that she is quite a strong writer. Like she's particularly this line, if I can find it, um, where, okay, here it is. So Dumbledore says to Harry, Uh, Harry, there is never a perfect answer in this messy and emotional world. Perfection is beyond the reach of humankind and beyond the reach of magic. In every shining moment of happiness is that drop of poison, the knowledge that pain will come again. Be honest to those you love. Show your pain because to suffer is as human as to breathe. And I just thought this was a profound and poignant uh, message of this play, which deals with, you know, trauma and dealing with traumas of the past and dealing with imperfections and, you know, Dumbledore as the character that he is really kind of putting it into perspective for Harry. Um, I did highlight one more and this goes back to um, Harry dealing with his trauma. So I should have read that then, but I would like to read it as well. Um, Cause I think this is a great exploration of Harry's character, his trauma and his guilt about the past where he says, um, I shouldn't have survived. It was my destiny to die. Even Dumbledore thought so, and yet I lived. I beat Voldemort. All these people, my parents, Fred, the Fallen 50, and it's me that gets to live? How is that? All this damage, and it's my fault. The boy who lived. How many people have to die for the boy who lived? And I think that's a great 
another great moment of Harry in this play. Um, so those are the things, the themes that I really like in this play. Those are the things that I think work really well. And there is a lot to, to lot to like about this play. And I think seeing it on stage really reiterated that to me because I think I've really soured on it over the years after reading the books once. I'm like, no, I never want to read that again. It's so shit. I never want to read it. But like seeing the play, I was like, no, there, there's a lot about this that actually does work. So here are the points that I think do not work, should not have happened. And their inclusion actually makes me frustrated about the fact that they were allowed to happen. And please don't think like that I'm angry about the, like, I guess I am kind of angry about these things, but the play is amazing. And I think you should see it if you like Harry Potter, but there are some things that happen in this that just do not, do not work at all. And well, there's two big things here. So I guess the first one I will uh, I will I will talk about because it's the main plot point of this play, which is the usage of time travel. Essentially, uh, if you've read the book, you know. But the the plot of this is that uh, Amos Diggory, Cedric Diggory's dad, is wants to go back before he dies to save Cedric from being killed and bring him back and spend moments with his son. Jay, uh, Albus Potter and Scorpius Malfoy overhear this and decide to do it for him using an illegal time turner that the Ministry of Magic has found. Because after the events of Prisoner of Azkaban, which is the other Harry Potter thing that uses time travel, more on that later, um, all the time turners were destroyed, but one has been found and seized by the Ministry. They steal it and they decide we're going to go back in time and save Cedric Diggory. Now, there are a number of reasons why this does not work. And there are a number of terrible things that happen as a result of this that just suck. So here is me venting as a huge nerd about why the time travel in this play is stupid, terrible, and just should not have happened. So we see time travel in Prisoner of Azkaban, as I said, which uh, um, Hermione is required to use a time turner to uh, put... Hermione and Harry are required to use a time travel time turner from Dumbledore to save Sirius Black and Buckbeak, essentially. Um, and what we learn about the rules of time travel, because time travel is very interesting conceptually, right? It can have various different forms of functionality depending on the universe it's in. So using Prisoner of Azkaban as an example, what we realize about the established rules of time travel in the world of Harry Potter is that Harry and Hermione go back in time and it's done really well in the film, right? Essentially, in Harry Potter, time travel is possible, but all of time exists on a single plane that is unable to be altered. Essentially, if you go back in time, you were there the entire time in the past. You always existed in the past. You were always going back and you're not going back and diverging into a new timeline, you are actually going back and you were always on that timeline. Your part, your future self always came back, did what it did, did what they did, and then went back to the future, right? That is the way time travel works in that Harry Potter film. And that is a crucial part of the plot of that film slash book, which is, uh, you know, particularly where Harry is being attacked by the Dementors and a mysterious Patronus in the shape of a stag comes to save him. And Harry's only logical conclusion at that point is that he must have seen his dad. He believes, I saw my dad across the lake. 
he came to save us. He cast his Patronus. That was my dad. Because he sees someone that vaguely looks like him casting a stag Patronus. He assumes that it was his dad. He then realizes, no, okay, it was always me. I was the one doing it from the future. And when I saw my dad, I was actually seeing me. And I knew that I could cast the Patronus to save myself because I had already seen myself do it, right? There was never a go back in time and create a new timeline in which this happened. It was always there. Harry mistook his dad for himself. He was always there in the timeline. Single timeline. Single timeline, unable to be altered. Now, let's talk about how time travel works in Cursed Child. Uh, If you've seen Back to the Future, which I'm sure most people have, the way that time travel works in Back to the Future, probably one of the most famous examples of of time travel fiction in in the modern zeitgeist, um, Back to the Future actually has a different type of time travel, which, as you know, basically it's like the butterfly effect. If you go back in time, you know, and change something, then that one change has a ripple effect that can cause the entire future to change. Because you change one thing, every other thing in place changes and a new timeline emerges where things change, right? That's how it works in Back to the Future, which is, you know, that's why you see all these things. And like Futurama does a good parody episode. And, you know, there's the thing of like Fry sleeps with his own grandmother and becomes his own grandfather um, and, and just things like that. And... In Cursed Child, the time travel functions the same way as it functions in Back to the Future, right? Like, they go back in time. It's totally different from Prisoner of Azkaban. They change things and then they come back to the future and it's a new timeline where things are completely different. In theory, great, but that is not how time travel originally worked in Harry Potter. And it is impossible for those two types of time travel to coexist in the same fictional universe. It is actually impossible. It's not like me being angry about it, saying that it couldn't happen. It's just like, it is not possible for time travel to function both ways in the same universe, especially like using the same thing, which is a time turner. Like the time turner can't change, you you can't change how the time turner works to suit a narrative. Like that is how time travel works in that existence. And it it is impossible for this new type of time travel to exist. Like, again, not, not a theory. It is a fact that that type of time travel could not exist in, in the same universe as the, the other style single plane time travel, right? It, it, it is not possible. And I think this is where a lot of people get very angry at this. It shouldn't work like that. And it can't work like that right? And not only that, but I I feel like this decision was made purely to allow legacy characters to appear in the alternate timelines that were dead. Like that's how Snape appears because he's alive in this alternate timeline where Voldemort won the war. And also just like these alternate timelines are so, so bad. Um, I think looking at it from like a feminist reading, for example, uh, in one of the timelines, Hermione and Ron never got married um, because of, you know, a series of things. And uh, in that timeline, in the, in, the cur- in the real timeline, Hermione is Minister for Magic. But in the timeline where her and Ron don't get married, Hermione is a bitter and angry, essentially Snape-like defense against the dark arts teacher at Hogwarts who is very angry and bitter and, like, never reached any success, which I just, like really dumb choice 
to imply that without Ron, Hermione wouldn't have been successful. Like, I, I really like Hermione and Ron being married, but, like, I don't think that if Hermione wasn't with Ron, suddenly she'd just be this bitter, angry defense against the dark arts teacher because that's not in character for her at all. Like, and that she needed Ron to become the success she was. And without Ron, she's just like this lame, angry defense against it. I don't know. It just felt so, so bad. That was, seemed like a really, really strange decision for me. Um, In one timeline where Voldemort wins the war, um, Cedric Diggory becomes a Death Eater because instead of saving him in the Triwizard Top tournament, they go back in time and humiliate him. And because of the humiliation, Cedric Diggory becomes a time, uh, becomes a Death Eater, right? Which seems so out of character. Like I just cannot envision Cedric Diggory ever becoming a time, uh, a Death Eater because of some weird humiliation at a, at the Triwizard Tournament. Like it just seems so weird that he would, go and become a Death Eater in this alternate universe. It is then revealed that um, Cedric kills Neville Longbottom at the Battle of Hogwarts. Also seems out of character that this one humiliation at Hogwarts led him to become a murderer. Um, And then because Neville was killed, no one ever killed Nagini the Snake at the Battle of Hogwarts. And uh, uh, Voldemort ended up winning because Harry couldn't kill him because one of the Horcruxes was still alive. Now, all of that is fucking stupid, but just to, uh, I guess, just to further that discussion, I also don't think that that's what would have happened because Harry was still in that instance, the master of the Elder Wand. So if Voldemort attacked him and used Avada Kedavra on him, it still wouldn't have worked. So I guess, yeah, maybe Voldemort wouldn't have killed, I think Voldemort wouldn't have been able to kill Harry still, and but yeah, Voldemort wouldn't have died, so they both would still be alive. Like in this iteration, Voldemort kills Harry, but that wouldn't have happened because he was using the Elder Wand, which Harry was the master of at the time. So to me, that just felt super, super stupid. I am really, really anti this entire concept of how the Time Turner worked in this. I hate it. I think the time. I think, and I think it is a very really brazen decision for JK Rowling. Cause she would have, she knew she must have known that this was totally anti how it worked. She must have known, but just did it anyway. She must have known people would get upset with it. And as someone who is so protective of the Harry Potter brand and the Harry Potter narrative, like it just seems like a real betrayal of your own audience to do that. Like that's how I feel about it for sure. And maybe I'm just like, maybe I am reading too much into it, but I'm sure I, I know, like I've seen the discussion on you know, Reddit and everywhere that this is like gen- generally how people feel about the cursed child, that it is just the time travel aspect just ruins the laws of the universe that it exists in. Maybe only nerds think about this like me, but like we, like, yeah, I, I cannot accept that. So there's one thing, all of the time travel stuff, really stupid. And that's the, the that's the huge flaw. The, the, the huge thing that upsets me is this could have been so good. Like all of these themes that I spent like half an hour talking about are really good. So here's, here's the other thing that, that doesn't work for me. Another huge plot point that is revealed is that Voldemort had a daughter, Delphi, who is, uh, who is posing as Cedric Diggory's cousin, Delphi Diggory, when she is actually Voldemort's daughter. She wants to use the time turner to bring Voldemort back. She wants to complete the bidding of the dark Lord and etc. Cool. I guess cool, but uh, and Delphi is a is a fun character. She's a great character, 
portrayed really well. However, few things that are wrong with this. The first thing that is wrong with it is that, and I, I think a lot of people I've spoken to have agreed with this, is that um, I do not think that Voldemort would have ever had a daughter or a child in general. Um, and I'll unpack my thoughts on this a little bit. I think that Voldemort, as a character, his whole mission was to become a mortal. That's why he literally split his soul by becoming a mass murderer and created the Horcruxes, right? If having a child and like, you know, because, you know, let's talk real world. A lot of us, you know, we know we're not immortal. We all know we're going to die. So a lot of people are like, well, I'll pass on my genetics as a, a, to a child, create a child. And that's me, you know, that's me doing my, the only thing I can do to continue my family line, right? Voldemort, no, like he literally wanted to become immortal and was willing to do whatever it took to become immortal. And the idea that Voldemort would have settled for, okay, I'll just have a child and pass my DNA along is just ridiculous. Like it's, that was, it was so out of character for him. It would be so out of character for him to do that, to have a child and be like, okay, this is the next big thing. Because not only was Voldemort so fixated on being immortal, but he was also an incredibly selfish, self-motivated and self-important character. Like, Voldemort really does not care for anybody else. He cares about himself and being immortal. And I just do not think he could, he would ever have a daughter. The other thing, and my other reading of it is like, and this again, like this is probably where I think maybe you're thinking too much about it, but I know other people think about this stuff. So I guess the other thing I think about with it is that I don't think that like Voldemort, the more Horcruxes he made, the less human he, he became right? Essentially, he was more monster than human by the end. And, you know, obviously the play Bellatrix Lestrange is the mother, implying that at some point Voldemort and Bellatrix had sex. And I just don't think Voldemort would have ever, like, wanted to have sex at that point. Like, I I, I know this is just thinking so much about it, but, like, Voldemort to me always came across as a very, like, non-human and yeah like at one point he was a boy and a student and a teenager and I'm sure like had interest in sex and sexuality but I just do not think that at the point he was he would have been a even necessarily able to have sex and be like interested in doing it being the self-important person he was like I just don't think that like he would have done that and also I don't think that like I reckon I don't think I reckon if Voldemort was shooting, I reckon he was shooting blanks by that point. Like he's so not human. How could he be, how could he even like, surely your DNA is impacted by that. Surely Voldemort cannot impregnate a woman. I I really just do not believe that he could impregnate Bellatrix Lestrange. I just don't think that even if he has a penis, even if he has semen or whatever, you know, this is definitely thinking so much about it, but I do think about this. I just don't think he could. I do not think that, it is in his character, one, to want to have sex or to have any sexual desire at all because he, I just don't think that matters to him at all. I don't think he he's human enough to experience, like, sexual need or se- sexual arousal. Two, I don't, even if he did have sex, I do not think that he is human enough to pass on any DNA that he has left. I don't think he's human enough to impregnate a woman. And C, it is totally out of character for him to have a child. Did I just do an unpacking of the sexuality of one of the biggest uh, villains in in modern fiction? Yes, I did. Voldemort would never have a daughter. 
Voldemort would never have a child or be interested in having a child, be interested in passing on his legacy or his DNA to somebody else, because that is not his character. Voldemort is a self-aggrandizing person. Voldemort isn't like, say, I, I often use like a Star Wars analogy for Harry Potter because I think Star Wars is like something like Harry Potter where it's just a huge global phenomenon and a great story, right? Darth Vader was a huge, like, is a human. He is not, like, Darth Vader, yeah, he's got like this robotic helmet on, but he's still, he was always a human. It was always a human underneath that. It is very explicit in Harry Potter that the more Horcruxes Voldemort made, the less human he became to the point where his face started deforming. Like he literally looks the way he does because he was so not human anymore. He was something else. He was some other. Um, And yeah, I just thought that was really weird. In terms of like, when I look at, say, the time travel aspect, and to use this Star Wars analogy again, because, like, a lot of people are, like, a lot of hardcore Star Wars fans, when the Star Wars prequels came out, were like, this is shit, I fucking hate it. And, like, me, who didn't grow up watching the original Star Wars and saw the prequels sort of first, because they were the ones that were out when I was a kid, like, I was always like, oh, I don't mind the Star Wars prequels, but as a Harry Potter fan, I now can kind of understand that, because one of the main plot points in the prequel... prequel prequel Star Warses was this idea where they changed that the force was like this mystical thing and they made it so the force was actually a thing made up of midichlorians, which which were like small micro life forms that made up the force. And people hated that because it it changed the established rules of what the force was. And I feel like the time travel in this is the same as the midichlorians. It ruins the uh, establish set up rules of this universe. And it just, to me, totally ruins it. And so I did a lot of thinking about this. And as I've said, there is so many good themes in this. I outlined it, rewind the podcast. I outlined all the really great decisions by the writers of this that are kind of spoiled by these things that don't work. But I had to do a lot of thinking about this. And the conclusion that I have come to is I know J.K. Rowling says that the Cursed Child is canon, but to me, I believe that based on the fact that time travel functions differently between Prisoner of Azkaban and Cursed Child, I actually do not think, you know, as someone who really likes this stuff, world building, universes, fantasy, sci-fi, lore, like all this stuff I really like and I think about a lot. I'm a huge nerd, guys. I'm a huge nerd. All of this stuff is important to me. And based on my entire knowledge of how all this stuff works, it, 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 to me, it is actually not possible. It is not possible for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child to be canonical in the Harry Potter franchise. It is actually not a feasible or possible thing because you cannot change the rules of how time travel work. Like, like it's not like it's, I don't think it's up for debate. Like, I just think it is not actually possible for that to be canon. It is a fun story and it's an incredible play. But as far as my understanding of fiction and literary fiction work, there is no in-universe explanation there to explain why time travel functions differently now. It's just a plot convenience for J.K. Rowling to bring back characters like Snape and explore how characters like Hermione would be if they never married Ron, which was ridiculous anyway. Like, there is no in-universe explanation that explains how time travel changed. And I don't like that. So to me, I cannot consider Harry Potter and the Cursed Child canon in the Harry Potter world. I just can't. Like, it just, 
it, to me, it is not possible for them to be canon. I, we're, we're nearly at the end here. I've been going for an hour, which is, uh, says a lot about my nerdiness that I can talk about this for an hour. Um, so here are my final thoughts. One, I don't consider it canon and I, and I will not consider it canon. Um, two, I think that this is an incredible play that even if you have read the book and uh, enjoyed it uh, and not enjoyed it, like me, I think you will get a lot out of seeing this on stage. I think seeing it on stage really adds a lot to it and makes it really, really enjoyable. And I think you could, you would definitely like it a lot. The play, it, it, this is, here's, here's the thing. This is a marvel in stagecraft. This is an achievement in what can be done on a stage. Um, there are parts where they're going into the Ministry of Magic through the phone booth and they get sucked into the phone booth, the actors. No idea how that happened. I have no idea how that possibly could have been done on stage. They, it literally looks like they're sucked into the phone book, uh, the phone booth. I have no idea how it happened. This is a masterpiece in stagecraft. This is a well, an incredibly performed and passionate performance from every actor. Like, you know that every actor up there on stage understands how important Harry Potter is to a lot of people and they do an incredible job with it. And I loved that. Narratively, there are some incredible, incredible parts of this. Uh, honest, honestly, there are incredible parts of this. And um, there are a lot of themes that are really good. But and uh, but at the end of the day, the time travel and Voldemort having a daughter just really, really irritates me. <laughs> As a fan of this universe, it really irritates me. Um, but I would love to see this again. I would see it again. Um, I'm sure this will be adapted into a film at some point. I don't know when, but I am positive this will eventually be adapted into a film. And uh, I don't know if it will work as well in a film. Um, and I would love to see another go at this story. Like I would love to see this story without the time travel and have some other thing happening in the present that is the key plot thing that's causing all these relationship uh, things to happen. Um, overall, I had, a, I had a great two nights and I, 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 I loved it. Like I had a great time watching this play seeing these characters again on stage and I I can't wait for how the Harry Potter universe develops moving forward. But yeah, I mean, I'm still not a huge fan of the narrative and I know a lot of listeners have messaged me about it and not liked it either. So that is my comprehensive guide and review to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, parts one and two, which I saw here in my hometown of Melbourne uh, at the Princess Theatre. It was amazing. Uh, I would love, I think I'm going to try and get in touch with some of the cast members and see if they want to do an interview on my Mike Talks series. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. If you made it to the end, please uh, listen to obviously the fan fiction podcast. I mean, I assume you already do, but if you haven't, check them out. And uh, my other podcast, 20th Century Boy, I would love for you to check out as well. That comes out every Thursday. And uh, the video, the vodcast of this will go up on YouTube. So subscribe to my YouTube radio, Mike. I am nearly at a thousand subscribers and I would love to uh, have you on board there nearly daily content there thank you so much for listening and sticking with me uh, please let me know your thoughts I would love for you to write to me about your thoughts if you've read the play if you've seen the play where did you see it what did you think what do you think of my thoughts what do you think of my thoughts on the play like 
Yeah, I, I'd love to have a dialogue with listeners of this show about this because uh, I know a lot of listeners of Harry Potter and the boys are, you know, huge old school Harry Potter fans. So it would be awesome to, uh, to yeah, have a chat about it. Uh, all right, guys, my name has been Radio Mike and uh, this podcast has been the inside of my mind. Catch you later. Catch you later.